Please sit comfortably. Before I begin this um, talk today, you may remember in the talk I gave yesterday, I made a passing reference to uh, Bernie Glassman Roshi, who was the, the founder of the Zen um, Peacemaker Order. And um, I just got a, um, a part of an email, a group of American Zen teachers, and I got an email today that Bernie Glassman died today. And uh, so I just wanted to spend a little time saying a few brief words about him and um, we'll offer some incense and, and sit just for a minute in silence. After that, just to um, honour his life and his passing. Um, I met him um, once or twice um, at a session in um, the Zen Centre of Los Angeles back in the late 1970s. And um, he was probably about, say, maybe about 10 years older than what I am. So I'd imagine he would have been in his late 70s, 80, um, when he died today. But I remember him as a, a sort of a um, robust kind of man, Jew and he's Jewish, um, and sort of robust man, um, very energetic. Um, and he had a career as a mathematician with NASA before he became involved um, with Zen practice. And one little snippet, a memory I, rem I remember of him, um, is that in the, in the Zen centre of Los Angeles, it was in the middle of the city in a sort of very built-up area with different apartment blocks. And I remember him um, playing baseball in the backyard with his kids. And the thing I remember about him, he was just in there at 100%. Uh -huh. And um, he was a very um, compassionate and energetic teacher who had a very strong bodhisattva spirit and was very much involved in engaged Buddhism. So he wasn't interested in, in quietism. He had a kind of a very um, adventurous, entrepreneurial kind of restless bodhisattva spirit. And he developed bakeries in, in um, New York and uh, did a lot of work with the homeless and uh, engaged very much in, um, you know, uh, as a bodhisattva and encouraging his students to take on that work of engaging Zen in everyday life and in the suffering of everyday life. So um, I could ask uh, Anya just to offer some incense. Then let's just sit for together for a minute or so in silence and just reflecting on the passing of a life well lived.
Thank you. Cash over. The title of this talk today is Golden Repair or The Art of Golden Repair. Um, a few years ago I was writing a book on Zen and couple therapy and I was writing up some of the case studies of couples I worked with. At the end of one of the stories where um, a couple I worked with where their, their relationship had been quite broken and they had repaired it again. Um, and I used a metaphor at the end of the essay that was like one of those um, Japanese bowls, you know, that's been broken and they, they mend it with gold. So you can see the gold seams in the, in the bowl. And I said the relationship was like one of those broken bowls that had been, been mended and it was even stronger than what it was before. Those, the, the, that gold that mended it together made the bowl even stronger. And the cracks are not hidden either. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered recently um, that I'm not the first one to use this as a metaphor. And, uh, and the art of golden repair is, um, referred, is called in Japanese kintsugi. And I'm sure many other people have, um, have uh, used this as a metaphor, you know, for Zen practice as well. But the thing about golden repair, you know, and the Japanese form of aesthetics is that um, uh, a bowl, um, like a human life, um, has a history, you know, and once it was kind of whole and all together, and, and then the history, that the, the, the repair and everything shows where it was broken, where it was repaired. Its history is there to see. Mm -hmm. And it's not hidden. There's no pretense of hiding it. In fact, the golden seams through it, in, in, from a, a Japanese aesthetic point of view, enhance its beauty. And this sense of um, um, aesthetics it's very rooted in Zen and it's very rooted in um, another uh, Japanese term called wabi-sabi, which you may have heard me talk about before. But wabi-sabi um, is born out of no mind, non-attachment, acceptance of the way things are, and that through a human life, you know, or the life of an object like a bowl, is it will be marked by love by life mm -hmm. um, and those marks show they never go away and we're all marked with life we're all marked with the with the nature of transience you know and we're all marked with suffering to one degree or another and sometimes that suffering you know for the bowl you know, we get we get chipped in some kind of ways or maybe the covering of it, you know, the glaze gets a bit shattered where it's got knocked and a bit crazed, you know. And sometimes like a bowl, as a human being that can happen to us. And sometimes as a human being, we're broken, you know, and we're, and we're mended and healed again in some kind of way. Um, so it's a wonderful um, metaphor um, for looking at our, our Zen practice. 
Um, in my work um, as a therapist, um, I have noticed um, over the years that I, I have a rather soft spot for alcoholics. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my father was an alcoholic. But I, I have a soft spot for people who are in recovery from alcoholism or drug addiction, for that matter. And um, they remind me in many ways of this kind of golden repair. And they're people whose lives have been very, very broken. Um, and uh, sometimes initially through trauma and then through you know, the use of alcohol to deal with that trauma. And, um, and, when, you, and when they've been in recovery, there's a, for a number of years, there's an authenticity in them which really touches me. And they uh, don't seem to be putting on any pretense that, oh, I'm over that now and I'm healed. You know, they're very humble about it. Well, I'm, I'm always in recovery. And um, there's something really touches me about that authenticity that they have. It's like the golden threads you know, in the bowl are showing. They're not trying to hide it at all. And sometimes when I think of um, um, mental health, you know, and people going through various forms of anxiety, depression, suffering and so on, and they're getting better, so I think in our culture there's a kind of, there can be a kind of superficiality around what healing is. And it's like people want to hit all the KPIs, do you know, well-dressed, well-groomed, do you know, smiling, got a job. Mm -hmm. um, but if we understand healing, if I can say in a more spiritual kind of way, um, then to me it's a kind of healing where the trauma in our lives, do you know, or the brokenness in our lives, or that, you know, we've ever been chipped, do you know, and crazed, it never goes away. Then in a sense, trauma never heals. In a sense, loss never heals. Grief never heals. It does in a way in that we, we soften into it and, and we become perhaps more compassionate and more vulnerable in a, in a healthy kind of way because those things happened. But it's not a kind of um, rendering over the cracks. You know, this, this aesthetic idea of golden repair with the pottery is not like where you've got a brick wall you know, in your house and it's got all cracks through it and you, you put a render over it and then you, then you um, paint it. You know, it all looks you know, squeaky clean and nice again. That's not the aesthetic here. And it's important in our practice and also as a psychologist thinking of mental health, we're not, we're not doing a rendering, we're not papering over the cracks to make everything look okay. We allow the marks of suffering to be there, you know, that, and we allow the marks of suffering to be in our dominion and in our face and in the way that we, we show ourselves in the world. Um, just on this too, and, and going, I've got a Japanese theme through this today for some reason. I have a nostalgia for Japan. I actually have a, a mild form of suffering around from Japan. I think I, I envy their culture in many ways um, and the ancientness of their culture. Um, but anyway, 
There is um, um, uh, a novel by uh, Yuki Mishima, who you may well know as a well-known Japanese um, novelist, and he wrote a book called Decay of the Angel. And in that book, he talks about, um, in, the, in the story, um, a man going to a Buddhist temple um, in Kyoto, and he sees this old nun, a very, very old nun, maybe in her 80s or 90s, and he makes this statement, age has sped in the direction not of decay, but purification. So here in this nun's face, you know, wrinkled and so on, marked with the passage of time, is a kind of a purification of beauty, which is there, you know, not just not just the the, the old age of um, uh, bitterness or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful statement. Uh, it really touched me to to read that and be informed of that. And often when I look around in Sydney, and sometimes I, I look at the faces of some of the more mature women in our group, and to me they, they seem more beautiful than brash young women. Mm-hmm. And especially if there's vanity there. And it's kind of like an expression in an older, older person's face. It's very, very beautiful when you get that kind of glowing sense of compassion and steadiness of gaze, you know, and, and humility um, would actually shine through. So what is our definition of beauty? Uh-huh. What is beauty? I must say I prefer, I, I much more prefer the wabi-sabi version of it than the airbrushed version of it. And um, so, as we sit, um, what happens um, is that sometimes what happens with sitting over years and years and years, if it's working, we just, we just sort of drop into a deeper, deeper, more compassionate, gentle authenticity of what we really are. Not, a, not the, not the idealised version of what we would like to be, that gets in the way. That's the airbrushed version. It's just a deeper, more authentic way of, the, of our experience. And we don't have to negate the narrative of our past. You know, there's joys in our past, there is suffering in our, in our past. It marks us in some kind of way. And just need to allow that to be there because that's the narrative of our life. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be perfectly fixed up because that's, that was the karma of our life. That's just the way that it is. And when we experience life that way, uh, with that kind of deeper kind of acceptance, then the golden, the, the golden kind of um, threads you know, that hold the bowl together is sort of the expression that comes through or the energy that comes through from that authenticity is a kind of humility, a kind of vulnerability in the healthy sense of that word and a sense of compassion that arises from that experience. 
because if we're being broken ourselves or chipped ourselves, then there's a kind of a recognition that that's just the way things are. Things fall apart. Mm-hmm. Things fall apart, eventually everything is broken. And when we touch that place, we touch something which is universal in our experience, not just about ourselves. Now in this too, um, speaking of people who are alcoholics or even people with any other kind of suffering like cancer sufferers too, you can go over the edge with this as well. Some of my um, clients who've been in recovery for quite some time talk to me that there's a downside to a kind of AA culture and recovery culture too where people just talk about war stories of the past all the time and they reinforce their identity, you know, as being broken. And it becomes a sort of another ego kind of identity to, to hide behind. Um, but that's not what we're looking at here. It's a deeper kind of acceptance to that, um, where that humility and, and that um, vulnerability shines through in our experience of life. And it is the source of um, compassion in our life. And you know, coming back to that um, story of the decay of the angel, that, that, um, that novel by um, um, Yuki Mishima, age is sped in the direction not of decay, but purification. It brings to mind to me the opposite of that. And that is a novel I read years ago, and you may have read, called The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And in that book, is a story of this somewhat um, narcissistic young man who's very, very handsome and beautiful, and he goes through his life, but he's, he's an evil kind of person and does harm. And uh, his life hasn't been purified. You know. And um, towards the end of his years, when he's about to die, he looks in the mirror and all this evil karma comes back and his face looks all ugly and you know, disfigured and so on, and bitter and twisted. And that's kind of the opposite of the old nun. Mm-hmm. And in our lives, you know, through Zen practice, there is a purification process that occurs. And um, at any point in our life, you know, we, we can go down that pathway of purification, which is not being pure in any sanctimonious sense. It's kind of like just recognising how we can get caught up in bitterness and resentment, you know, and comparing and grasping and so on, which marks us in an unhealthy kind of way. But if we can just stay present to that, um, fully accepting the marks of life as they touch us, then that in itself is the purification process. We go, at each point, we go down that pathway or we go down that pathway. Um, But what I notice in, in all people who've gone through years and years of Zen practice, um, you see that softness in their face. You see it coming through. Mm-hmm. 